Okay, so here's Tom Fishburne. Decisions, decisions. Maybe we should test some more before we we're confident enough to make a decision. Okay, very, very interesting. Okay, so we've got zero no's and hundreds of yeses. Okay, now we don't know what the sample set was. It's possible that the uh, question or the sample set or something else skewed the answers all one way. So I would be a little suspicious about this kind of an outcome, right? That it was just set up poorly, right? But let's see what Tom has to say. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a decision. This is from Rene Descartes, 17th century French philosopher, one of my very, very favorites, and had a, a dramatic, uh, a dramatic encounter with God later in his life. And and uh, he kept a record of that sewn in his shirt that he would wear. And they didn't know about it until after he died. And they found it sewn in his shirt. Okay. And also Rush, the, the progressive rock band. I listened to the entire Rush song called Free Will. And uh, it was hard to make out the lyrics, but I read the lyrics. And it actually quotes this word for word. So we can always analyze more data and write more decision trees, but we never have 100% confidence in how things are going to turn out after, after making a decision. And that's one of the key things. And we'll get into this a little bit more in the third article. There's always a leap of faith, which is Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, there's always some gap between what you know for sure or what you think you know for sure and the the real world, if you will, and certainly the future, <clears throat> okay? One of my favorite leap of faith stories, three founders, Richard Reed, Adam Ballon, and John Wright, spent six weeks or six months working on smoothie recipes, and then they went to the London Jazz Festival, or a jazz festival in London, with a sign over their booth that said, should we give up our jobs to make these smoothies? There were two trash bins for the empty cups, one marked yes and one marked no. By the end of the festival, the yes bin was full and no bin had only three cups in it. <clears throat> you know, now me, I would have probably thrown it in the no bin, not because it wasn't a tasty smoothie, but I would like to know, you know, what's your cost of goods? What's your competitive situation? What kind of locations are you going to pick out? How are you going to distribute it? Um, and it turned out they did quit. And it took, it was a massive hit, but success was far from secure. It took a long time for them to get funding and longer still to prove the business, right? So I would have probably suggested some kind of scale, small scale, additional test. And that's what we do in, in the history of direct mail. We, we come up with a hypothesis, which is, are our smoothies tasty, which they did prove. And then we might want to ask, you know, what are what are our chances of repeat customers, right? Something like that. What are our what are our chances of? That would be a great one, right there. That would help you get funding. Um, but the decision to make the leap started it all, right? And for every one success, there's probably ten failures where they decided to to risk it all. Uh, you know, I see it in my my vicinity where a band or a, a bar will change names often. Not many stay there for a, for a long, long time, but many start and then end. 
Okay, last week I shared my 20-year anniversary, said, says Tom Fishburne. 12 years ago this month, I made my leap of faith. Okay, I'd been idling anyway, but all of the support I received from that make a f making the leap announcement were like cups of, of in the innocent yes bin to me. They helped me, uh, give me confidence in making the decision to leap. And he has available here uh, a clickable link for the um, for the making the leap uh, speech that he gave a year after that. Okay, here's an here's a very very current October 28th article by Ray Schultz saying that brands have trouble making decisions despite AI driven data analytics. And the reason I highlight this is because I assume they have big data, right? I assume they have plenty of data. I assume they have plenty of algorithms. And now, remember 2 years ago it was like, well the big data didn't get us there and the and the modeling didn't get us there, but now we've got AI, and that'll get us to a decision. Nope. And when you look back on this litany of promises with direct marketing technology, you might say, gee, if, it, if this, and 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 this didn't quite get you to a decision, how are you going to get to a decision with AI? And in fact, the reason that AI is so wonderful is that you basically abdicate your decision making, unlike the song Free Will. Okay? Marketers have tons of data, but 80% say they're having trouble making data-driven decisions. Nothing new. 90% of those with AI-powered predictive analytics have trouble with the decision making. So it's actually worse with the AI. Yet 95% of companies now integrate that capability into their marketing strategy, and 44% have done so completely. I don't, I don't know what a complete AI means. That means if you make a decision independent of the AI, you're instantly fired? I don't know. Why are there so many problems? Most companies today employ manual model building approaches. Okay, so most of them are still not doing this AI. It's not surprising that the results are failing to are failing the needs of marketing teams. Okay. He the implication is that if we if we had Pecan AI from Zohar Brofman, that somehow that would overcome the automated the automated modeling will overcome the manual modeling. It says, while data scientists are maybe skilled in building the perfect software models they're simply too far removed from the nuanced realities of the business to be effective but somehow the ai is going to be better <laughs> it doesn't even understand what we're go what we're approaching here it just it's just carefully sorting through the, the back end the, the the history okay so 250 respondents they seek to gain additional ai powered capabilities with predictive insights because Data scientists are overwhelmed. They don't have time to meet the requests. What you need in there is somebody to say, you know what, this request doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> and what decision are you going to make? You know, I have an interesting, I think it's an interesting article. It's up on LinkedIn somewhere. It's called How to Get Bitheads to Do What You Want. <laughs> Excellent. Very apropos. Uh, it's not what you think. Anyway, uh, those building the models don't understand the marketing goals. 
Right. And the reason is that they ask the marketers, what are your marketing goals? And no matter what the marketing people say, it's probably not really what their goals are. Their goals are to get a promotion. Their goals are to win an award. <laughs> Data scientists don't ask the right questions because they don't have the right information wrong or partial data yeah well that's always a problem and you're always going to have partial data you're never going to have all the data you like <clears throat> so face that too 93 percent also feel data scientists could solve more complex problems if they had low or no code ai predictive modeling tools all oh, right right the new tool sorry zohar i just don't believe that the new tool is the answer okay so now i'm going to go back to an article called Drowning in Data by a guy named John Miglosh. And not that I think John knows that much about it, but uh, originally written and published from Marketing Tools Magazine, ironically. <clears throat> and the copyright is 1995. Okay, so <clears throat> it's really before the internet got started. It's before we had big data. It's before we had supercomputers doing our marketing analytics. It's really before most of anything. Now, by this time, we actually had a couple of years under our belt of doing some modeling. <clears throat> so uh, we were in the, on the front edge of the curve. But, And I highly recommend that you go over to WDMA.org and download this article because um, I'm not going to, you know, I've only got five minutes. So I'm not going to touch on it very, very well. But you know, the first point I made was that people aren't doing what, much with what they have, okay? Most people, even in 1995, even though RFM had been around for decades, uh, most people didn't use it, you know? And, you know, in the 80s, I was running a company up to from zero to 10 million uh, off basically just recency, just R, <clears throat> no F&M. Um, and so... At the same time, we were getting calls about people wanting neural, neural fuzzy logic chaos theory models, you know, and all this stuff. But they didn't know what RFM even meant. They weren't doing the basic basics. And this is still true today. When I mention RFM in a speech or a webinar, people look at me like a deer in the headlights. They still don't know the basics that the, the, comp the, the customers that have bought most recently are most likely to buy again. Okay, just that simple. Customers that have bought the most times are most likely to buy again. Okay, so you can use those two together and see the interaction. And the company, the customers that spent the most may not be likely to buy, but if they do, they're more likely to spend more. So that you take that into consideration. As George Moser told me once, you know, when, a, when I get a $50,000 order from one list, sure, that's an anomaly. Sure, that's an outlier. But that list is done okay. <laughs> I'm going to try and mail it again. Maybe there's another big fish in there. <laughs> made sense, George. George always made sense. George had a lot of George Mosherisms. Okay, so the first part is, and this explains, this explains why marketing has this unlimited appetite, insatiable appetite. But the first off principle is there's never, it says, there are never enough data to make a decision because I knew back then about grammar. Um, and... We used to look at reports and we would think, well, they're hiding something because if we ever got our hands on the real data, it was full of errors and mistakes and uh, trash, right? <laughs> they were they were hiding that because the computer still ran, the order still processed, and you know it was it wasn't it wasn't germane to our decision making, right? But when we got the lid off and we got our own little data data 
marketplace or whatever they call it, Data Mart. Um, and we saw all these errors. We knew that there was problems in the way we generated data, which was for order processing, not for marketing. We thought that was the problem. But the real problem is not in the data. The problem is in ourselves. Decisions have consequences, as Tom Fishburne just said, which will, not, which will only occur in the future. The consequences are in the future. And no matter how much data we've collected, we don't have any from the future. Okay, and so even when we got what we asked for, it just raised more questions because we, we could anticipate the questions, but we couldn't anticipate the future. So at the moment of, our, of truth, we're telling ourselves if we knew that one additional number, we would be comfortable making the decision. It's not going to be comfortable. That's the first thing you got to know. You're never going to have enough data to make a decision. Okay, okay. Now, we heard in the in the 80s especially, the TQM movement said you'll never control what you do not measure. And so then we got in the idea that if we measured everything, we'd control everything. Neither of those are true. None of those premises are true, right? You can often control something that you don't measure, right? Like you may not be measuring the angle of the, of the uh, ailerons on an airplane while you're flying it. You may not know the exact angle, but you can feel the plane tip, you're measuring that. So you're measuring one thing, you're measuring the outcome, not the not the the cause. But it doesn't matter because what you're really interested in is keeping the plane right side up. Okay? So and just because you knew the angle of the ailerons would not mean that you kept the plane right side up. It'd be much more important to know where the horizon is than it is not even the angle of the plane, but the horizon itself. It's much more important to know that than it is the actual angle of the ailerons and how the and or the speed of the of the air flowing over the wing versus under the wing that differential is important that's what keeps the plane in the air uh, but there's so many things you can measure that are that are incidental and irrelevant to the outcome so that is important is to get things that relate to the outcome Focus more on the measurement of the outcome. Focus more on proper on profit than sales. Okay. Focus more on re response orders than clicks. You work your way from the back to the front in terms of priority. Okay. And that's not how we do it today. Most of us work on work on the clicks. Work on the 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 number of hits we get you know and if we have more hits than one side than the other that's why i said at the jazz festival they would be better off figuring out how many people bought more than one rather than figuring out just how many were in the yeses and how many were in the noes because there would also be a peer pressure once you saw a wastebasket full of yeses it's going to take a, an extraordinary courage to put it in the no box because maybe they, they would ask you why yeah, you may have to defend your de decision in the no box. You don't have to defend it in the yes box. Okay, eternal truth number two. Tomorrow will be like yesterday, except if it isn't. <laughs> and that one is almost self-explanatory. But the, the most important part is, is that you affect the test by how you've tested. So the segmentation analysis works the best with sloppy clients who've been mailing to everybody in the past. The more they've been mailing everyone, the more we know about all of the segments. 
And people always want to say, well, how would people have done if we would have mailed the ones we didn't? <laughs> and if you can figure that one out, you know, start another data analysis company. Okay. Uh, principle number three, keep it simple. The point of a model is to simplify the decision making. AI layered on AI layered on AI probably won't do that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I used to ask people, I, I placed test orders and I'd say, you know, nobody tried to upsell me. Nobody asked, would you like another, would you like a bag of fries with that? And they said, oh, yes. Well, we have this system we're implementing where we look at the correlation of multiple products, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, you know how we used to do it back in the old days before we had computers? <laughs> We'd take a big red crayon on a white sheet of paper and say, this week's special is. And then we would tell the telemarketers or the chat bots or something to say, would you like to hear about this week's special? And most people would say, sure. And there was our chance, right? And a, a good deal is better than a correlated product. And Amazon never did all that correlation. They just... They looked when an item first sold the first time, if somebody bought something else with it, they would put that in a box and there were five boxes. And so you notice, go on Amazon, it still says this. People who bought A also bought and then there's five choices. It might not make any sense because I might have bought a hunting book and I might have bought a children's book or I might have bought a theology book or a philosophy book. You never know with me. And if I were the first ones there, that's what you'd get. They could have gone back and sorted it a bit and see which ones were the most often bought uh, together, but just took more computer power and they didn't care. Okay, eternal truth number four. And this is a little bit of a way to set the budget. Any idiot, John Worth said, any idiot can find the lumps in the soup. <laughs> it doesn't matter what technique. And anybody can find the good customers because they keep buying from you almost no matter what you do. <laughs> you know, you can stop mailing, you can stop emailing, they'll call you up and say, what happened? Right? And stuff like that. Or they'll get in touch with you. So the good customers are easy. The dead customers aren't quite as easy because they may not really be dead. They may only be partly dead. But after you've mailed them or you contacted them a hundred times and they haven't ordered again, you can set down that pencil and say, I don't think they're coming. <laughs> I don't think they're coming. Okay? And so it's not hard to find the dead customers. It's a little harder than you'd expect, but uh but they're not it's not that hard. So Anyway, the middle is where all the money is. And if you have a little middle, you're not going to be able to spend much money. So keep that in mind. There's a little formula at the end that tells you how to set a budget. And this is from 1995. But even now, it would still make a lot of sense. It would be better than most budget setting I see in the AI and big data world. If you would have followed this rule since 1995, you'd be way ahead. Have a great day. Like and share. Your friends will know you're smart. Share, not like. Just hit the share button. And your friends can see what you're looking at. And I highly recommend you get over to WDMA.org and download this article because it's worth it. I'll put it up right away. Okay? Bye-bye.